We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Thank you so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and conspiracy theories to provide you, and more than likely what Jackie Moran may have considered a weird distraction from everyday life. This week we're back in the United States to discuss a really weird case from the state of Illinois. But before we get into that, I have a bit of housekeeping to share before I fill you in on what I need a distraction from this week. If you want to hear your need for a distraction in a future episode, please feel free to shoot me a DM or send me an email. In terms of housekeeping, for patrons tuning in, this isn't new news unless you haven't seen the post yet. But for everybody else, I will be unpublishing the Weird Distractions Patreon page effective September 30th of this year. After taking some time to kind of think about the Patreon page a bit further, I've made this difficult decision, which obviously was not easy since I do enjoy making the extra content over there on that platform. As I've been very candid lately, I've just been busier in my personal life and with my new job. There's just been a lot going on to the point where it's hard to put out as much as I have been putting out for the last, I don't know, three, four years. It's all a blur at this point, but it's been a lot to juggle. Once the Patreon page is unpublished, no new patrons will be able to join, and those that are currently on come September 30th, 2023, will not have access to the content moving forward. However, you can remain connected to the page and not get billed, from my understanding. I hope to someday go back to having the Patreon page, but right now I just I can't manage it. I really hope everyone understands, and I am thankful to those who have been very supportive of the show over on Patreon and just in general. Your support will forever mean a lot to me, and I am just really sorry that I have to do this. I don't feel great about it, and that kind of ties in as part of my need for a distraction this week. Of course, obviously, I need a distraction from the fact that I am going to be shutting down the Patreon, but I also need a distraction from just feeling like I'm letting people down as of late, whether it's not saying the right thing at the right time or not doing enough. I just, I don't know, I've been my own worst critic lately, and yeah, it's not great. If anyone else out there is tuning in kind of in the same boat, just know you're not alone. Your feelings are valid. Maybe this is just a little bit of a bump in the road and we can all kick back, relax, and start enjoying spooky season because it is on the horizon. I am so stoked for Halloween. I don't know about you, but I am ready to decorate my house already. I want to watch all the scary movies and just, I don't know, get that spooky serotonin, if you will. Having said that, let's get into this week's weird distraction. I've heard this week's case a few times, but was reintroduced to it all over again while listening to a recent Lore podcast episode. When I heard host Aaron discuss it, I thought, well, I also want to cover this on the show because it's just such a damn weird case. And I mean, hey, being weird is in the podcast's name, it's very on brand, it just seems like a perfect fit. Please join me today as we get into the mad gasser of Mattoon case, being the weird distractions version, of course. 
Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics, along with other disturbing adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Nestled almost three hours south of Illinois' capital of Chicago lays the city of Mattoon, a.k.a. the highlighted area we'll be focusing on today. The city's motto, according to their website, is working together to build the future. Although focusing on the future can be great, especially with a city trying to be, I don't know, maybe a bit progressive, today we're actually going to be focusing on Mattoon's past, taking it all the way back to 1944. On August 31st of that year, Urban Rafe and his wife, who resided on Grand Ave, were awakened during the early hours of the morning by a strange odor. Urban, a sheet metal worker, reportedly began experiencing nausea, vomiting, and overall weakness almost immediately after he woke up. Urban was unable to move due to what has only been described as like a random, unknown fume that was coming into the bedroom. These fumes appear to have been poured in through the Rafe's open bedroom window. His wife, concerned about her husband maybe suffering from some kind of gas poisoning, tried to get out of bed to help him. However, reports claim that Urban's wife realized she was partially paralyzed and unable to be of any help. It would be an hour or more before either of the Rafes could call the authorities, who found nothing out of the ordinary on site when they came to the home. There was no evidence or any kind of instance of foul play having taken place at the Rafes home, which led police to kind of chalk this up as being maybe just a gas leak. And yet, Something similar would take place on Friday, September 1st for Mattoon local Aline Kearney, meaning the race occurrence was just the tip of the iceberg. After putting her two children to bed on her own that night as her husband was away at work, Aline herself was probably exhausted. I mean, being a parent just sounds tiring. Not only that, but accounts claim Aline wasn't actually home alone. To backtrack a little bit, earlier that day, Aline's sister, Martha, joined Aline and her two nieces at the Kearney home, with accounts noting that Aline usually was fine being home alone while her husband was at work. But tonight was just different. Tonight, she just wanted her sister there, with resources noting that Aline had allegedly taken out a large sum of money earlier that day, and reportedly she felt uneasy being at home with that amount of money. Aline may have experienced a gut feeling that her day was going to be different, maybe weirder than usual, hence why she asked her sister to come over. As Aline tucked herself into bed, she supposedly noticed a strange odor within her bedroom. I first noticed a sickening sweet odor in the bedroom, Aline quoted later on in a Washington Post article, but at the time thought that it may be from the flowers outside the window, end quote. Before long, the sickening sweet smell had manifested into this unknown paralysis that Aline started experiencing in her legs. Dorothy, Aline's then three-year-old daughter, also reportedly experienced paralysis, crying out to her mother asking why she couldn't move her arms and her legs. Luckily, Martha, Aline's sister, was still in the home, and once Aline called out for Martha, Martha reportedly ran into Aline's room and opened the window. A nearby neighbor would have called the local authorities after learning what happened to Aline and her daughter, which no one really seemed to know what was actually happening other than they just smelt this sweet, sickening smell and then felt sick. Now, I'm not sure the specific timeline, but Mr. Kearney, Aline's husband, apparently comes home not too long after all of this takes place. 
Weirdly enough, when Aline's husband returned to the family home, he allegedly witnessed a suspicious figure standing at their bedroom window. Mr. Kearney reportedly tried to get his hands on this figure, but sadly he was unsuccessful as this unknown entity bolted for a nearby alleyway. This unknown figure, according to Mr. Kearney, was described as male-presenting, who was tall and dressed in dark clothing with a tight-fitting hat. Word of these attacks hit the local newspaper, being the Journal Gazette, who dubbed the mysterious offender as the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. More attacks were flooding in from that September 1st evening once the press released their story. Which isn't weird in the sense that if one person comes forward with their story, we usually see maybe a bit of an influx of other people being like, hey, that happened to me too. For example, there was another victim who came forward by the name of Mrs. Ryder, who resided on Prairie Avenue. Mrs. Ryder disclosed that she awoke later on September 1st to hearing her children crying and throwing up. And I can't imagine how much panic she would have been in. It's one thing to hear a kid wake up like that, but two at once? That's pretty chaotic. It was then Mrs. Ryder noticed a sweet-smelling mist that seemed to be coming from an open window in her room. Sources claim that by the time police were en route to Mrs. Ryder's address, they were already being notified of another incident on that September 1st evening, being the third of that evening alone. Now, there's no information about this third attack as the person's identity and situation was not shared with the media. Regardless, we have one reported attack on August 31st, being the Rafes, and then we have three attacks on September 1st, being the Kearneys, Mrs. Ryder, and then the third unknown individual or individuals. Luckily, no one died in any of these incidences. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of trauma and a lot of fear, but there was no death, which great. That's at least one thing we have going on here that's positive. Things would die down after September 1st for like a hot minute. That is until September 5th when the Mattoon attacks in town took a turn for the weirder. According to the YouTube channel Bedtime Stories, a local by the name of Mrs. Burrell called police on that September 5th evening, panicked, noting that she had interfered with someone wearing a mask that appeared to be trying to get into her house through her window. When police arrived on scene, they noticed that there was another incident evolving nearby Mrs. Burrell's house. Now, the details of this scene seem to kind of differ depending on the resource, but I'll explain the two renditions I came across. The first is that local couple Carl and Beulah Cordes had gone out that evening, and when they returned home at around 10 p.m., they noticed that there was something at their door. This something was a spotted pink cloth that had been stuffed into their screen door, as if a neighbor had borrowed it and returned it while the couple were out. Except it wasn't theirs, and it smelt funny. Beulah was the one who apparently went ahead and sniffed this cloth, and according to an All That's Interesting article, this simple sniff turned painful. In a direct quote from that article, quote, Beulah said that she felt as though a charge of electricity had gone through me. A burning sensation began in her throat. Then she probably began to bleed from the mouth. The attack had all the signs of poison gas and the mysterious culprit remained at large, end quote. Now, the second version of this tale involving the Cortez is somewhat similar, except when police came to connect with Mrs. Burrell, their neighbor, 
they witnessed an armed Carl Cortez on his front porch after seeing a dark figure jetting off down the road. Beulah apparently followed behind her husband and noticed a metallic lipstick holder and a small white cloth that was soaked in some kind of unknown liquid. Beulah apparently got closer to kind of get a better gander at the cloth and began to have what has been described as a violent interaction almost immediately. Beulah supposedly slumped down to the ground and was puking a mixture of bile and blood. Regardless of what rendition actually happened, police would go on to do a search of the area nearby and during the search, police apparently discovered something quite peculiar in the grass. It was a small metallic item that would later be identified as a well-worn skeleton key. Not sure what this skeleton key meant. It didn't really say in any other resource. So again, just another weird mystery amongst all of this weirdness. Six more attacks took place in Mattoon, which I'm sure made locals absorbed by utter fear. And who could blame them? An unknown assailant was wandering around, attacking them at random with something that they couldn't see. Some of these attacks apparently had eyewitness accounts of folks witnessing a tall figure outside of their neighbor's homes with an unidentified metallic object leaning in through opened windows. One report noted that two victims noticed a tall figure pour gas into their window, only to return later and watch them struggle as they suffered from paralysis. Almost as if whoever was doing this was enjoying watching their victims struggle, which would classify perhaps as Scheidenfreude, which is a pleasure or amusement in response to others' misfortunes, pain, humiliation, or mistakes of other people. Obviously, I cannot say this is for a fact, but if it sounds like Scheidenfreude, then maybe, just maybe, it is Scheidenfreude. When it comes to fear, some people will do anything to try and combat it or control it. Some of the locals decided they had enough of this unknown assailant causing fear and havoc on their town, and reports claim there seemed to be some unhappiness with how police were dealing with the matter. For example, in a Washington Post article, it mentions how, quote, police failed to take the case seriously enough at first, end quote. Perhaps due to this, and wanting to kind of put an end to all this fear, a vigilante group would be formed, and apparently they would scour the streets at night with hopes of either capturing or deterring whoever the attacker was. From an All That's Interesting article, quote, Private automobiles full of vigilantes armed with shotguns rolled slowly through the streets at night. Other citizens were taking pistols and shotguns to bed and sleeping behind closed windows, end quote. Unfortunately, this did not come out with any positive results. As the mad gasser of Mattoon continued a reported 25 separate attacks over a two-week period in that September of 1944. The last incident would take place on September 13th, just as FBI agents from the Springfield, Illinois office had arrived on scene.
The final Mad Gasser incident involved a woman by the name of Bertha Birch, who called frantically after finding her son passed out in his room on the floor. Bertha claimed that she went into her son's room after hearing some kind of odd movement taking place, where she not only discovered that her son was on the floor unconscious, but also caught an unknown attacker in his room halfway out his window. Bertha described this unknown attacker as distinctly feminine in appearance, but dressed as a man. Weirdly enough, police would find high-heeled footprints in the wet mud of the flower beds below Bertha's son's room. But just as there was a further potential clue from Bertha's description, the mad gasser attacks ended. No one was arrested. No one died from the attacks. Just as the attacks came, they went, and life seemed to somewhat go back to normal for the folks in Mattoon. Interestingly enough, there were no reported similar attacks anywhere else in Illinois after the attacks on Mattoon, and there weren't any in that state earlier on. It's almost like the attacker or attackers drifted like a cloud of smoke as quick as they formed. Which begs many questions, and perhaps one you might not be thinking of that I'll share with you because it came across my mind when I was doing research for this case. That question is, was there really a mad gasser of Mattoon? There seems to be two camps of thought when it comes to this case. There is the camp that believes the Mad Gasser was an actual person, or persons, whose attacks remain unsolved to this very day, followed by the other camp, who believe the attacks were essentially made-up hysteria during a time where everyone was a little bit on edge. If you recall, the attacks took place in September of 1944, aka during World War II. I'd have a hard time believing people all over the globe weren't on edge around this time. Throw in a random attack involving something they can't see, and you could have the perfect concoction for hysteria to happen. Nonetheless, there were families who swore up and down that they suffered from an unknown attacker during those two weeks in September despite what anyone else has to say. There were also similar attacks that had reportedly happened within the state of Virginia, which one resource I came across, being the previously mentioned Bedtime Stories YouTube video, had brought up. In further research into the Virginia gas attacks, I came across the Legends of America website, who noted the following in a direct quote. In the 1930s and 40s, there were accounts of a mad gasser operating in two locations. The first occurred in Virginia in 1933 to 1934. The second was in Illinois in 1944. Also known as the Anesthetic Prowler and the Phantom Anesthetist, these names were given to the person or people believed to be responsible for a series of gas attacks perpetuated against area residents. The first attack occurred on December 22nd of 1933, near Haymaker Town, Virginia, in the home of the Cal Huffman family. At about 10 p.m., Mrs. Huffman smelled something strange and soon became nauseated. She and the children then went to bed as the smell dissipated. However, the foul odor returned about 30 minutes later, and Mr. Huffman went to a neighbor to use the phone and to call the police. The police arrived but could not determine the source of the smell, and by midnight had left. At about 1 a.m., the mysterious gas appeared again, and all eight family members were affected suffering from nausea, headaches, and constriction of the respiratory system. Most stricken was 20-year-old Alice Huffman, and a doctor was summoned who gave her artificial respiration to revive her, end quote. 
Similar to Mattoon, we see two camps when it comes to the Virginia Gasser, a camp that believes and a camp that says no, this is a case of mass hysteria. Although I'm almost done telling you all about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, I want to get you acquainted with some of the suspects and theories out there. Trust me when I say, this case is about to get even weirder. Like, if you think it's been weird up until this point, we're going to turn that dial and just, well, not we're not even going to turn it, we're going to crank it at this point. <laughs> Let's break down some suspects and theories, and hang on tight because we're about to slowly peek into even more weirdness. As mentioned, there were similar attacks in Virginia prior to the ones that supposedly took place in Illinois, being Mattoon. Because of this, some people believe that the perpetrator, or perpetrators, that caused the Virginian attacks were responsible for the ones in Illinois. Either that or the Mattoon, Illinois attacks were caused by some sort of copycat. Neither theory has been proven as fact, and again, I feel as though both have their own arguments based on what camp you kind of belong to. In terms of another suspect, Scott Maruna, who wrote about the case in his book The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria, pointed out a local man named Farley Llewellyn. Farley was known to indulge in his own chemistry studies within his basement, according to resources, who noted he even once caused an explosion in his trailer. Turns out, Farley was described as a loner who lived behind his parents' grocery store. He was apparently living out there after coming home from the University of Illinois, where he studied in chemistry. Shocking. One resource noted Farley struggled with alcoholism, along with being part of the town's rumor mill. What kind of makes all of this a bit more interesting is that previously mentioned explosion. A blog I came across called The Blog That Goes Ping noted more about this explosion in the following direct quote. Farley would never reveal what had caused the explosion, but Maruna believes that he had been synthesizing 1222-tetrachloromethane, which, as he writes, is a clear, oily liquid that is extremely volatile with a sweet, fruity odor. Breathing high levels of this can cause fatigue, vomiting, dizziness, and possibly unconsciousness. Yes, Farley does sound like the potential perfect candidate with this being said, and yet there's a lot of flaws, and we also have to take in consideration this is a theory that's never been proven. When it comes to the flaws, first off, when you look up Farley online, all that comes up seems to be his name mentioned in association with this case. I tried to look him up based on his name alone on the Find a Grave website, which came up seemingly empty with results. That doesn't mean that Farley never existed. It just means he's hard to find. And when someone or something is hard to find, doubt starts to take over. Another flaw that I came across in that blog that goes paying I previously mentioned states that Farley was reportedly picked up by police on September 10th, where there were three attacks that took place alone that evening, meaning there's no way Farley could have done them because he wasn't in the community. He was with police. There's also another kind of weird layer of this theory, which points back to the mad gasser potentially being a woman or someone presenting as female. Now, apparently Farley did have sisters, and it gets really confusing here because some people believe that Farley's sisters may have actually helped Farley in these attacks for unknown reasons. However, that has also never been proven as actually real. 
Speaking of which, for all we know, Farley and his family were maybe one of the unknown or unlisted families or individuals attacked during the 1944 Mad Gasser frenzy. It's hard to say, which, speaking of difficult things, I do have to address this other theory that's kind of standing in the room with you and I. That theory is that there are some people who don't even think the Mad Gasser was human. That's right, throw out the Farley theory because we're crossing the bridge to Terabithia and chatting about the Mad Gasser being an alien. Some folks out there think that the Mad Gasser was out of this world, hence why the attacks happened quickly, and why the perpetrator watched some of the victims, perhaps wanting to see how humans would react to whatever gas they were putting in. Although never proven, it's not hard to go down the rabbit hole and begin to wonder if whoever set out these attacks was even real. There's so many layers to what could have happened and who could have done it that it's kind of fair game for anything, even aliens. However, that leads to a slippery slope of what-ifs and even where we start maybe poking at someone's traumatic experiences, which isn't a great thing to practice, like at all. Yes, dip your toes in the weird waters of wonder, but don't forget the people involved as well and their emotions. I think this just reinforces there's a theory with every mystery, and sometimes mysteries will just have to stay mysteries. With that being said, it's time to wrap up this week's Weird Distraction. This week's case has been an emotional, gassy roller coaster that has left me and maybe yourself flowing with questions. Was the Mad Gasser one person, or was it a group of people? Were they locals of Mattoon? Did they mean to cause harm? Why did they do what they did? And most importantly, what actually happened? On top of that, what really was the gas? See, there's so many questions. And I'm sure if we all sat around and talked about this more, we would just continuously come up with new questions. It's been almost 80 years since the Mad Gasser attacks, and yet we still have all these questions remaining with no real answer. But I would love to hear from all of you. What do you think happened? Let me know your thoughts on today's episode over on the podcast social media accounts, or feel free to shoot me an email. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, anyone who you think needs a distraction about the show. Doing so is one of the best ways to support this show for free. Speaking of supporting the podcast for free, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into. When it comes to any corrections that need to be made or perhaps some constructive feedback, please feel free to send me an email at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Are you looking to rep some Weird Distractions merch? Please check out the link in today's show notes for the bonfire link. It's never a bad time to treat somebody you love or perhaps treat yourself. Although the Patreon page is currently on an indefinite hiatus, I just want to thank the previous patrons of the show. Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Shadow, Courtney, Cheryl, Susan, Jennifer, and Kristen. Thank you for supporting the Patreon page. I truly appreciate every single one of you. For those on social media, Weird Distractions can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, and Facebook. 
Lastly, I'm always wanting to hear from you. I'm looking to hear about your weird paranormal encounters, maybe too close to home true crime cases, and other weird experiences that you're willing to share to be featured on a future Listener Distractions episode. No matter how short, how long, spooky, or just weird, send your tales my way to, again, the show's email address being weirddistractionspodcasts at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.